I spent most of my years in college uh, attending history classes. Uh, it was one of my majors when I was, when I was there. Uh, I remember that most of the history that I studied, uh, whether it be about World War II or about uh, the Middle Ages or whatever, most of the history I studied is really a story about uh, the famous people and the important people who made, made history. I mean, I think about it, if I were to ask you to kind of recount the, what happened in the last you know, 40 years, if you've lived that long, or even 15 if you've lived that long, you, you probably would kind of recount, I don't know, who the prime minister was or uh, the, ma the major world events that were taking place uh, at that particular time. The, the, the big stuff, the stuff that makes it into the newspaper, the 9-11s, the, the, you know, I imagine years from now we'll talk about the COVID-19 fiasco and all, all of that kind of thing. Uh, history really is a story of the great people making great decisions or greatly bad decisions, and it's influencing the entire world in one way or another. What's really interesting when you, when you come to the Gospel of Luke is that you realize, actually, that that's really not how Luke tells this story. You expect him to start talking about, like, the Caesar and what he was doing and what was going on in Rome at the time, but you don't. The beginning of this book is about a, a very nobody kind of beaten down couple who are uh, serving faithfully. As, he's a priest, his name's Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, and uh, they are just people who fit in, you just meld into the woodwork. And yet this really is what Luke's story is about. It's about people like this. It's about shepherds. It's about, you know, teenage girls that give, you know, are, are called by God to, to bear the bear the son of God and be the mother of Jesus and that sort of stuff. It's about the little guys. And so uh, when we jump into this, this book at Luke 1 verse 5, that's, that's what we start with. We start with uh, this, this lovely couple, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And so I want to jump right into it. There's a lot here. It's a fun story to tell. But uh, I want to just kind of give us some categories or some headings so that you'll know where we are in the in this sermon, there are three stages to this story. One is uh, the tragic situation that it begins with. Second, a frightening confrontation. And then finally, a doubting orientation. So a tragic situation and frightening confrontation and a doubting orientation. Luke 1, verse 5 to 25. So here's the first of those, a tragic situation. Uh, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So who are they, who's this couple? I mean, there's a few things that we learn about them, them here. Um, one of them is that they're both from priestly families. Uh, Zechariah is from this priestly division. That means that one of the many divisions of priests that go to serve at the temple quite regularly, maybe for uh, twice a year for one week at a time. He's one of those divisions. His wife comes from, uh, from the, she's a descendant of Aaron, which means that she's also from a priestly family. And that was a really highly noble idea. You know, if you were a priest and you married into a priestly family, uh, that, that was like, you know, a, a blue blood 
in, in, in the Jewish world. Uh, so this is like a Colossian marrying, uh, marrying a, a, a Redekop, right? In the Mennonite world, you know, the, the kids will be highly honored and attend MEI and everyone will love them. Uh, so so they're, they're, they're a blue blood couple in the Jewish world. A uh, few other things about them. Um, they were righteous in the sight of God. It says that right in verse 6. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that they were like perfect in the sense that righteous means that, you know, uh, totally blameless and have never done anything wrong. It means that as a general rule, they were people who kept the law of God relatively perfectly. They, they were people who honored God by the way that they lived their lives. They were righteous people, good people, like kind people, upstanding people, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So what you've got is a noble marriage, noble lives, and you expect at that point that somebody's got a noble marriage and noble lives. The way that the culture of that day worked is that you expect those people to be people who are, who are blessed in their everyday life. They have lots of kids and they have lots of crops and they have a great future because they're living so righteously before God. God is rewarding them with all those other things. But what you find in this passage is not that. Verse 7 says, but this noble family, this upstanding couple were childless. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, childlessness in, in this time was viewed as a, um, a disgrace. Uh, it's not too hard to say that the women of those days, they actually had one job and that was basically to bear children, to bear boys so that, you know, you would have some sort of social security in your old age. The government didn't take care of you like that. So you needed to have somebody to work the land that you hopefully had, somebody to take care of you. Uh, so it was a big deal if you didn't have boys, but it was especially a big deal if you didn't have any children at all, because that means that, you know, God hasn't blessed you with that particular blessing, which was very normal for most people around that time. And the way that people would view that is, is basically like you must have done something wrong to incur such a, a, a devastating life situation. So you see this in the Old Testament sometimes. You see uh, the book of Job, uh, you know, when, when, when Job has all these horrible things happen, his children die and all of his crops fail and, and all that stuff happens, uh, his friends show up and they start making an accusation against him saying, look, Job, the way it works is that God gives good things to good people and bad things to bad people. So if you're getting bad things, it means that you've obviously done something bad. So search your heart, search your life, and find out what it is that God's punishing you for. And Job's response is, no, 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 that's not the case at all. I've been blameless and upright. You see this uh, kind of attitude, cultural attitude, when uh, Jesus uh, goes up to this man who's born blind in, in John chapter 9, and he's, he's born blind, and, and his disciples say, hey, Jesus, here's a guy who's never been able to see his whole life. Uh, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Is that... Is that because of his sin? Meaning, is that because God saw this guy's going to be a really, really bad sinner in his life, and so he cursed him with blindness at the very front end? Or maybe his parents sinned. But either way, the reason he's blind is because he, he sinned. People who have bad life situations have brought that upon themselves through you know, bad behavior. And so the way Elizabeth would have been a work, walking around this particular town 
would have been as somebody who was not highly thought of, even though she was, you know, from a priest family and she was a noble husband and all those things, she was not highly thought of. Walking down the street, I imagine there would be whispers made about her, right? Like, there goes the sinner. There goes the, there goes the childless one, the barren one. She, she, she clearly is not on God's good side. She's clearly got some sort of hidden sin inside of her life that uh, we, we don't know about. You can imagine the heartache for her in that situation. And how many times you would be praying, you know, if the entire society is constantly giving you stink eye based upon a, you know, a situation that is really not your doing, how often you would be praying to God, would you please remove this disgrace from me? Would you please remove this disgrace from me? Over and over and over again, for years and years and years, this woman would be praying, and along with her husband, Zechariah, that God would do something about this, and yet nothing had been done. Nothing. So you can feel the sadness in this moment. You know what that's like, though, right? I mean, you can imagine that Zechariah and Elizabeth were people who actually were wondered, maybe God had forgotten them. And you know, you know what that's like. I mean, I know what that's like, that feeling where you're pressing God for something over and over again, and it just doesn't come to fruition. Uh, I know people who've prayed for years for a spouse. It's all they want, you know? Like every time they go home for the holidays, their parents are saying, hey, have you met anybody, you know, great lately? The expectation is they get married. And they would like to be married. It's just that they... They just haven't. God, they keep praying and praying and praying, Lord, would you please help me in this community, in this society that really values marriage? Would you help me to have this, this, this spouse? They wonder what's wrong with them. The answer, of course, is nothing's wrong with them. It's just the situation that, that, that they've been placed in by, by the Lord. Uh, some people pray to have a child like that. They've been wondering their whole lives whether or not you know, how many kids they were going to have. They had all these plans for a household and things, and yet they've come to find out that, you know, in some way that they, they struggle to conceive, and they've prayed for years. Or maybe it's the parent who, who prays for a wayward child, you know? And it's been years that they've been praying for them. They were brought up in fear and admonition of the Lord, but then they've gone their own way. And it breaks the parent's heart. It's all they pray about every morning, every night, over and over and over again. Maybe that's what they pray. You pray for a friend of yours, somebody you care deeply about. And it seems like all your prayers bounce off the ceiling and God's not answering them. That's what Elizabeth would have been feeling like. She's old now, it says. She was unable to conceive and they're both very old now. So those days are gone. They come to the grips with maybe the fact that this is not actually going to turn out well for them. But before we move on in this story, I want to remind you that in the scriptures, there have been lots of people who've been in this situation, haven't there? Like if you know your Bible, you'll know lots and lots of people who've been in the situation of childlessness and God actually has come through in some amazing ways. So even though you start this story kind of feeling for Elizabeth, you need to realize that she's actually in a situation that God has done a lot with in the past. So maybe, just maybe, she too will be like a Sarah or a Hannah, and the Lord will come through for her. So let's see. That was a tragic situation. Here's the frightening confrontation. Secondly, look at verse 8. Uh, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot 
according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. All right, so he gets to go every, like I said, uh, twice a year for one week at a time because he's part of this division of priests. There were 24 divisions of priests, and each division served at the temple twice a year for a one-week span each time. There were 18,000 priests per division. So do the math, 18,000 times 24, whatever, whatever that is. Hey, Google, what is that? Um, so you, you understand that, that uh, the likelihood of you getting to do perhaps a special duty, there were, all, there were special duties that you could have when you'd go to the, the temple and do your week of service twice a year. Uh, you would sometimes do just the normal priest stuff, but if you won basically the priest lottery, if you won the casting of lots, you got to have the most honored role, which was to offer uh, incense at the altar of incense inside what's called the most holy place. It would have been the closest that you would ever get to what's called the Holy of Holies, which is where the, the Ark of, of God, the Ark of the Covenant was behind a veil. I actually have a picture or a couple pictures here. One of them is of the altar of incense. So this is the thing that they would go in. And if you were a priest, you'd go in a couple. There were tw twice a day. There was a morning session and an evening session. And each time the priest would go in, they'd clean off the top and then they'd kind of refill the incense and it would continue to burn. That was the idea is that the incense would burn all day, all night before the Lord. It was like the prayers of the people going up before the Lord all the time. So that's, that's an image of the altar. But my favorite thing that I found whoosh, is, this, um, is this picture. It's a Minecraft. Somebody had, has gone in and done a Minecraft uh, redo of the, of the temple. Uh, the Herod's Temple, and this is a great picture of it. They did a great job. Uh, this little box right here is where the altar of incense would have been located. And this is a veil, and through that is the Holy of Holies, where God himself, the Almighty, dwelled. And he, he sat on the, the ark kind of as his throne. But the altar of incense was the closest a priest would ever get. Uh, this, is, this is called the holy place, and uh, very few, if I mean, very few priests would make it into this, into this area ever. So this is like the biggest, the biggest deal in, in this guy's life. The most honored opportunity that he's ever had. He's won the lottery and he's going to go in and he's going to do this, this particular act. Now, you, you need to know it is because it's the greatest and most important moment of his life. You can imagine the nerves in, in, his, in his heart or his stomach about this. I remember uh, years ago, my, my sister-in-law is uh, a world-class opera singer. She's fantastic. And uh, she, she used to sing at all these um, opera festivals. And one of the biggest opera festivals in the world is called the Salzburg Festspiel. It's the Salzburg Festival in, in Austria. And we were there at one point uh, with her. My wife was looking after her, uh, her, her sister-in-law's son, or our nephew, and he was... Uh, just little, and so we were kind of playing the nanny role, and we were, had an opportunity to go to the, the opera that night. I, I didn't have very good clothes, as I, as I usually don't, and uh, wore just normal stuff. Everybody's dressed in tuxedos. I felt er very out of place, but I remember it being, I was allowed to go backstage, though, right? Uh, just outside of Heidi's dressing room. Heidi is the, my wife's sister, and uh, 
I was standing outside the dressing room and I'd spend earlier that day, actually we had been near the beach and uh, I, Heidi was taking care of her son and it's just normal family stuff. And so Heidi to me is just, she's just my sister-in-law. She's lovely and uh, consider her a friend. But there was another girl in the hallway who was like marching back and forth, like sweating out of nerves. She had a little pamphlet in her hand and then on one side it said Heidi Grant Murphy, which is my sister-in-law's name, and she, she had a pen and this pamphlet. Somehow she had gotten backstage and she was given the opportunity to get a signature and have a short conversation with Heidi who was getting changed in the dressing room. And Heidi came out and this girl who'd been passing, pa pacing back and forth came to Heidi and just started shaking. She was just shaking before her. And she, she could barely talk. And she, she finally got it out and had a short conversation with Heidi. It was kind of awkward, as it is when you go and meet you know, your, your, your particular hero. Um, I remember that image and that, of that girl pacing back and forth, because I actually think that that's probably a pretty good picture of what Zechariah was doing here. I mean, this is like the biggest, this is a big deal. Biggest professional moment of his life. So you can imagine pacing back and forth, being really worried about going into this thing. You gotta do everything right, right? If there's ever a time not to get it wrong, this is it. Kind of walking up the stairs while the worshipers are behind him singing, you know, cheering him on to go in and light the incense again. And goes into this massive hall and he walks down the hall and he gets to the altar of incense. And then, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Uh, we have a basement suite. My, my kids uh, play PlayStation sometimes down in the, in the basement of our house. The TV down there, and it's where they hang out with their friends. But uh, the couch kind of backs onto a doorway. And uh, I sometimes, well, frequently, will try to come into the into the room while they're watching Netflix or playing PlayStation or whatever, and I will try it as best as I can to quietly, without a sound, creep up behind them. And then at the last second, freak them out. I love it. They, they yell and scream, and then they usually take a pillow and go, Dad, knock it off, right? That's what happens when you get frightened uh, when you have this, you know, you're totally absorbed into a thing and then you're startled by something, you get, you get, you know, you, you jolt. But then what follows the jolt is this sort of realization, oh, uh, it's not a mass murderer. Jason did not come to kill me. And then you feel this kind of relief and then you get angry at the person who scared you while they laugh. This is kind of what's happened here. Uh, Zechariah has walked in. He is super intent on getting the altar of incense right. He's there cleaning it up, looking at it, probably not paying attention to everything. And then out of nowhere appears right next to the altar of incense. On the right-hand side of it, an angel of the Lord. <laughs> and the language here is that, that he freaks out. He's, he's frightened. But the difference between what happens to him and what happens to my kids when I freak them, when I scare them, is that uh, my kids get that uh, peaceful feeling afterwards, like, oh, nothing to fear. But instead, Zechariah, it says, fear gripped him. So he gets frightened, and then the fear doesn't just subside. The fear 
grabs him and embraces him and squeezes him. He's absolutely freaked out of his mind. I want to pause here. And I, and I, and I just, I want to talk for just a second though about what happens in the Bible when people see God or messengers of God. It's a very consistent picture. And so when you go through scripture, one of the things that you find is that uh, seeing God or one of his messengers brings on like dreadful fear in the person, in the human being because of the holiness and the, um, just the magnitude of the person they're seeing. So Isaiah in chapter six of the book of Isaiah, he sees the Lord in a, in a vision high and lifted up. He's on a, he goes into the temple, he sees the Lord on the throne of, of the temple and you know the, the robe of the Lord is, is filling the temple, smokes everywhere and the temple is shaking like an earthquake. And at this vision, Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. In other words, I'm, I'm as good as dead. That's a funeral pronouncement. Woe is me. You might as well kill me now because <laughs> I, I don't deserve to be in the presence of this mighty one. If you go into the New Testament, you have Peter, one of the apostles, when he doesn't know Jesus yet, he actually is, is a fisherman. He's out in a boat and Jesus borrows his boat to speak to the people on the, on the shore uh, from the boat uh, so that he's not being squeezed into the water. And so he gives his, his sermon kind of sits down on the boat, looks at Peter and says, hey, why don't we go out for a catch? And Peter's like, well, we were out there all night and we didn't catch anything. Jesus is like, yeah, try it again. And Peter's like, ah, fine. You know, I I will entertain you for a minute, but nothing's going to happen. They go out, uh, they let their nets down, and all of a sudden, all the fish in the entire sea decided that they want to jump into the net. In fact, they were jumping into the boat. They were so excited to be caught. And so Peter, they pull them all in. And then Peter looks at, at Jesus, realizes that he's the one who's caused this to happen. And his first words are, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. That, that's the way people react when they are in the presence of God or one of his messengers. It has a profound effect on people. A.W. Tozer is this old uh, pastor and uh, He reflected a little bit on this in one of his books, a book called Knowledge of the Holy. He said this, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man or woman is not that what he or she at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Essentially, what he's he's saying is how we view God will largely determine how we live our lives. If If God is mighty and holy and righteous, it will have an influence on the way that you view the world around you and the way you view the the God you serve. If he's small and insignificant and just like you, but a better version maybe, that also will have an impact on the way that you live your life. So you worry. That that seems to be a common Western human problem. We worry a lot, worry about the future, worry about our kids, worry about our spouse, worry about whether we'll have a spouse, worry, 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 worry. But would you worry as much if you realize that God is as sovereign as he is, if God actually is in control of the world? As much as he is, 
Would you, would you worry as much if you, if you realize that God is all-powerful, is able to do anything, but not, not only is he all-powerful, he's also all-loving, mean, meaning that he has a, a special dedication to those he's called, and that, and that you, you're one of them, and therefore he has bound himself in a covenant love to you, and he is determined that he will seek your good at every turn. Wouldn't that affect how much you and I worry? We have the God of the universe on our side. Why should we worry about what we eat and wear? Even Jesus says that kind of thing. Uh, we complain about our present circumstances often. We say things like, if I could go back in time, I would change this or I would do this differently. We have stories about time machines and how we would travel back so that we could fix stuff. Because that's the world. The world needs fixing from the way it's happened up to this, up to this point. Do you ever think to yourself, though, but by saying that, you're basically saying, yeah, but I'm wiser than God. Because the world as it's played out is essentially the way that God has allowed it to play out. And ultimately, uh, there are things in the world that he morally does not want. But sovereignly, he's brought to pass. And so what kinds of stuff are you going to go back and, ch- and, and change in the world? Aren't you questioning God's wisdom in your life? If you say, well, I'd like to go back instead of take this job, take that job. Well, the job that you took actually has led you to the place that you're in today. You want to go back and change that? so that you're not actually where you are today? Haven't you seen God work those things out in your life? Haven't you recognized that he's wiser than you and I? So why are we complaining so much about our present circumstances? He's got a track record of working those things out for our good in a significant way. What about, what about uh, the fact that you and I tend to seek revenge, especially while we're driving? But we tend to seek revenge when somebody wrongs us. And and our attitude in that moment is basically, look, if I don't carry out justice, there will be no justice carried out. If I I don't, you know, avenge myself, my name, my whatever, nobody will do it. And yes, there's a a rightness to that. There's a right to seek justice in the world. That That is God's desire for us. But what if you can't get it? Did you seek revenge at all, at all costs? Well, no, of course not. Why not? Well, because God is a righteous judge. And somebody might decide to go and shoot up a school and off themselves at the end, and we say, oh, no, they never had to face justice. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. So we can know that the world, even though it's out of control, is actually held in the hands of a just God who's going to bring his justice to bear on it. Nobody will escape the eye of him with whom they have to have an account. Don't you see, the way you view God, your theology, has a huge implication on, on the way you view your life. So how big is your God? I was teaching a, a class. Uh, we have these theology classes, and my job uh, about a week ago was to, on Saturday morning, take an hour and try to describe the character of God. There were something like 20 different character traits that I, I had to go through. I didn't get through all of them. I only got through four, four or five or six of them. And as I was doing it, I, I came into the session thinking to myself about all sorts of difficulties that I was having and problems and worries and complaints with God. And I remember walking out of the session after talking about God and his character for an hour. I walked out of the session went to my car and I sat in my car quietly for a few minutes. And I realized that my heart was full of joy and confidence. Why? 
Well, because I'd spent an hour thinking about the mighty character of our God, his infinitude and his eternity and his love and grace and patience and justice and wrath and all the manifold beauties that he is. And it just filled my heart with the knowledge that that God loves me and is seeking my good. You should do this sometime. You should stop and reflect upon the character of God. It'll fill your heart. It'll change your life. Right, I said that was a pause. Let's, let's go back to this story and hit, and hit play. I said that there are three stages to this. A, a tragic situation, a frightening confrontation, and then finally a doubting orientation. So Zechariah is in the temple. He's doing his duty, and off to the side is this angel who's appeared out of nowhere. He gets freaked out. Then fear grips him. And what do you expect to happen now? Well, verse 13, the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He is, he's never to take any wine or other fermented drink. It means that he's going to be a set apart one. He's going to be what's what take basically what's called a Nazarite vow, meaning that he is a, a, a unique set apart individual that God is going to use specially for a purpose. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. In the womb, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which shows up a little bit later when he, you know, he he actually uh, jumps in the womb when Mary comes and sees her cousin Elizabeth, and 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 he, John himself recognizes that. That the Messiah is in the belly of, of Mary, even though John's not been born yet. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So there's an important history that's going on in, in Israel at the time. Israel was basically an oppressed people they were conquered by the Romans and they were living under that Roman oppression. And so there were lots of prophecies and other things said about this coming day of the Lord when the Lord would send a Messiah, a, 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 a victor, a, a military leader who's going to come and he was going to lead the people of Israel out of their oppression. He was going to judge the oppressors and free the oppressed, the oppressed being the people of Israel. This was, if you sat down in a pub or you spent time talking on the streets of Jerusalem at a coffee shop at one point. This would be one of the big topics of conversation. The expectation that the Messiah was going to come. The expectation that something was going to happen soon. God has to take care of his people. He freed us from the Egyptians surely, and the Babylonians. Surely he's going to come and he's going to free us from the Romans. And we even have these prophecies and promises. Listen to what's said at the end. The last verse in the Old Testament, Malachi 4 verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. So what's happening in this passage is this angel's basically announcing to Zechariah the day that you've been waiting for, the day that everybody in the pub's been talking about, the day that the coffee shops have been full of you know, clamor about is here. I'm sending you the forerunner. I'm sending you the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. And Elijah, of course, turned the people back from their commitment to Baal to the, to the one true God. He's going to do that for you. He's going to turn you away from your idols and he's going to call you to repentance and 
following in his footsteps is going to be the Messiah. It's time. You can imagine, seriously, in this moment, you can imagine if I were Zechariah and I'd been expecting this my whole life, I've been serving in the temple as a faithful Jewish man, has been thinking about this for years. The last verses of the Old Testament, 400 years ago, that actually stated this. We've longed and longed under this oppression. You would expect him to be, his response to be like, yes, right on, excellent, or, or worship. Oh, thank you, Lord, finally. But here's how he responds. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, eh, how can I be sure of it? Like, I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So he's referring to this baby. He's like, you're going to give me a baby? Do you have no idea how old I am? Have you, seen my, have you seen my wife? She's not a spring chicken. She's an old hen, that one. So what are you talking about? You're going to have to give me some evidence that what you're saying is true. He's saying this to an angel of the Lord. Uh, The angel said to him in response, uh, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good good news. (laughs) Don't you love your name drops? Listen, I'm not just any angel. I'm Gabriel. And not only am I just any angel, I like actually stand in the presence of the Lord. He himself sent me. I'm a messenger of the Almighty. So don't you question whether or not not, uh, I have the authority to say this or power to do this. And now, verse 20, you will be silent, not able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. You can bank on what I'm saying, buddy, but you're going to have to sit in the sidelines and watch this game unfold. The comeback is on and you're going to have to watch it, not be able to talk. In fact, we learn later that he can't even talk or speak. Mutant death. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Usually guys went in, the priest went in and came right back out. Well, he was in there for a while and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, did something go wrong? (laughs) Did something go wrong? You have a heart attack or maybe, maybe he did it wrong and the Lord has judged him. When he came out, verse 22, he couldn't speak to them and they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, you know, angel. But he remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant. The Lord's word comes true. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. Here's what she said. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and he has taken away my disgrace among the people. So let me ask you a question. Why why did he doubt? Like there's, the Bible's filled with stories about, uh, about God giving the, the barren a child, bringing life out of lifelessness. Why, why, does, it, why does he doubt? You know, I, th- I think the answer to that is probably because he's become cynical. Uh, he's accepted, along with his wife, that God was not answering. They prayed and 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 nothing happened. You know, look, even you can go to your father today and you can ask and 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 ask. But eventually, you know, if he's stubborn and he doesn't want to give you, you know, the pony, you give up. You don't, you don't keep asking. You come to a realization that that is not something that the Lord is going to give. And for whatever reason, he doesn't want you to own a pony. 
For whatever reason, he doesn't want you to have a child. Zechariah, Elizabeth. And so you kind of give up. And then, you know, years later, you're standing in the temple and the announcement comes that the Lord's heard your prayer and not just your prayer for the people of Israel, your prayer for a son and not any son, a really great son. He's going to actually be the, the one, the Elijah who comes before the Lord. He's going to be set apart and call the nation to repentance. He's going to be like one of the most important people in the history of the nation of Israel, your son. You know the character Eeyore? He's a great character. I mean, he's the Winnie, Winnie and the Pooh shows. Winnie and the Pooh? <laughs> Winnie the Pooh shows. He, um, but he's, he's, he's an interesting character. Anything good that happens, he always sees the downside of it. He's kind of a, it'll never work. Looks at the downside of everything. How did Eeyore get that way? How do any of us get that way? How, how do we become Eeyore, cynical like Eeyore's? Well, probably just because we get so tired of asking and seeing our lives not turn out the way that we want them to, that we just end up looking at the downside of everything and we realize that it's never going to work and nothing's going to come to fruition. That's what Zechariah has become. He's become an Eeyore. And I'll get to tell you, I understand him. <laughs> like, I'm a doubter like he is. I, I'm, I'm, I'm an Eeyore like he is. I know I'm not supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a pastor who believes that God can do anything, who, as I said before, ha, he, God is this kind of God, and he's magnificent and amazing, and I believe, and I believe, and I believe, but I know I'm supposed to believe that he has history in his hands, but I got to tell you, it doesn't always feel like that. If you live long enough, uh, it is very hard to avoid becoming an Eeyore. As I said, I was a student of history when I was in college. One of the worst things I had to study was World War II and what was happening in the Holocaust. Do you know that Jewish people who were taken to the concentration camps, in order for them to... They, the, the, the Nazis came up with like really fast ways to kill it, after a while, it took too long for them to incinerate everybody at Auschwitz or whatever. So what they ended up doing is they hooked up uh, the exhaust of a large, like, moving van, and they uh, hooked up the exhaust so that it would just go back into a, the sealed container of the moving van so that they could actually drive a whole bunch of Jews to a, a mass gravesite and kill them along the way with the gas, the fumes. How does God stand by and watch that? Do you know how many prayers were prayed by so many people that that would end and it didn't, didn't end until, what, 1945? I had friends in seminary who, uh, remember that they lost their baby while we were there. Remember uh, seeing the little casket of this newborn, little tiny casket. Talk to the, the father, my friend, asked him how he was doing in class one day. And he, of course, tears come to his eyes. And he said, what I don't understand is we're here training to serve the Lord. We have prayed for a child for years. And then finally, when we are given one, the Lord takes him away. Does God not hear the prayer? Does he not want to answer it? And those are big things. What about just praying for a job? 
You pray and pray and pray and you don't, you don't get it. And you think every day, this will be the day, this will be the day. And you keep praying, you pray and pray and the Lord doesn't act. He doesn't act in the time that you think he's going to act. It's very easy to become an Eeyore after that. So how do you avoid that? How do you avoid the Zechariah attitude? How do you avoid becoming an Eeyore? And so here, listen, let me finish with just this phrase. If you, if you remember anything from the sermon, here it is. God's grace rarely acts according to our schedule. I read that from Tim Keller this week online. Listen to it again. God's grace rarely acts according to our schedule. We have all sorts of plans and ideas on how those things are going to come to fruition, but God isn't acting according to our schedule. He doesn't do the things that we want him to do in the time that we want him to do it. But listen, even though his timing sometimes seems ridiculous to us, he is always wiser. In the fullness of time, Jesus comes. In the fullness of time, John is sent to this childless couple. In the fullness of time, even though the people of Israel have been praying for years and years and years, finally God is going to act. And when he acts, it's exactly the right moment. Your life is a testimony to God acting at exactly the right moment. Despite our complaining, despite our letdown, despite our eorness about the fact that things haven't turned out the way we've wanted them to, he's always been wiser. You know the story about Joseph in the Old Testament? You know, his brothers sell him into slavery and he goes and he ends up uh, in a house with this, his owner's name is Potiphar and Potiphar's wife blames him for you know, sexual advances on him even though he didn't do anything at all. And then he gets sent to prison and he rises up in the prison and there's a cup baker and, a ba- and uh, the baker of the, sorry, the cup bearer and the baker of the king are in prison with him. They have a dreams. Joseph tells the cupbearer that he's going to be alive and he tells the baker, your dream's going to tell you, basically the king's going to come and kill you, that that's exactly what happened. The cupbearer is amazed at Joseph and is like, I won't forget you when I go up to the palace. And he goes up to the palace and seriously, he forgets him for two years. Can you imagine being Joseph sitting in prison for two years after thinking, this is going to be the moment. Finally, I'm going to get out of prison. Righteousness and justice will be done in my time. And nothing for two years. And yet when the story comes to its conclusion and realize that those two years were necessary and the famine comes about at just the right time and his brothers come down and Jacob and all this stuff, everything works out exactly like the Lord had planned it and the plan is magnificent. It's always magnificent. So look, I, I, I know your life is probably not turning out like you wanted it to. You might even be disappointed or frustrated not seeing it go your way. But God's grace rarely acts according to our schedule. In the end, I think you'll see that his timing is wiser. Let me pray for us, Father. I'm thankful for your goodness and your grace, and ask, Lord, that you would give us uh, eyes to see this, ears to hear it. Father, help us to be comforted by your actions on behalf of these people, these little people who are nobodies, just like us. We're not the ones who are sitting on the thrones of the world. We are the ones who are in the trenches just trying to be faithful, Lord. And so many of the things that we've asked for haven't come to fruition, Father, but you are 
doing things your way in your time and help us to trust you in the midst of that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.